Hello, welcome to Out to Lunch, a menu of great food combined with delicious conversation with fascinating people. My guest today launched her huge international career with the 2006 song Put Your Records On from her self-titled debut solo album, which became a top 10 hit all over the world. She's gone on to release three more albums, compose music for film and television, and perform at festivals worldwide. Her roster of collaborations is dazzling. Prince, Herbie Hancock, Mary J. Blige, and Stevie Wonder, to name but a few. With two Grammy wins, two MOBOs, and numerous nominations, including for the Mercury Prize, she really is at the top of her game. It's the gloriously talented singer-songwriter, Corin Bailey Ray. It was Stevie Wonder, it was Herbie Hancock, it was Dave Grohl, who I love. I think it was Emmylou Harris, like the Jonas Brothers. Oh, Jack White was doing it as well. So it was just all these people, like, on a minibus going to the, <laughs> going to the White House and me. So that was just really, like, a fun school trip, you know? We are standing on the epitome of a leafy North London street in Islington, to be exact, outside what was a classic British boozer and is now the Tamil Prince. Uh, it reopened earlier this year with a menu of South Indian food, both meat and non-meat. And the only dietaries we got off Corin Bailey Ray was that she likes to try new things. And this is a new pub doing a new thing. So I think it perfectly fits the bill. And there is a table waiting for us inside. This is Jack, who will be serving us. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you. Hi, I've is just met you outside. Is that water? Gin? This is just water and a nice beefy Yes, I will have some ginny water, please. Brilliant. Are you drinking? Are you? Um, I might have a tiny drink, actually, yeah. Cocktail spritzes and beers on each side, bottles and draughts there, and then on the other side, the wines. Okay, I think I'll have... I'll have a spicy margarita, because... What time is it? One o'clock in the afternoon. It's one o'clock on a Monday. And yeah. I'm, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> when you wrote Put Your Records On, did you know what you'd written? No, not at all. I just, I wrote the guitar riff in my house on my bed. I remember that. And then I went into... Well, the opening four chord turnaround. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, um, and then I went to meet with Steve and John, who I'd already written something with, and I really liked them. And I remember we, we had a session on it and then we went home and then we met back up maybe the next week. And I remember on the train, because I'm so bad with deadlines, on the train on the way in, I was like, I need to finish these lyrics. Otherwise, you know, they're both good lyricists. They'll just kind of fill the gaps. So I was like, mm. So I remember being like, oh, put your records on. Tell me your favourite song. Is this, you know, good? And it was little bits of moments of my life, you know, sort of sitting on the bus, having just had, had my hair natural for the first time, like, out and it felt so different, it wasn't tied back and it wasn't permed, which is I used to have my hair permed to get curls. And I remember being on the bus and feeling as my hair dried, it sort of got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I remember these boys, you know, they were black boys, but they were just like sort of sniggering at my hair. And it was still then quite unusual to see people with Afro hair out. And I remember being like, oh, I've just got to, you know, just got to kind of bear with this feeling, which is really new. Do you look back at that song as a perfect expression of where you were at that point? I, I think... But the word perfect is very loaded. I, I know was going to say, yeah, I think everything I do, I really see the flaws in and yeah. I think, oh, gosh. But I'm really happy that that song connected with so many people. And, you know, I still play it, obviously, every time I on stage and you know we just got back from Brazil and it's we played Rock in Rio it's 150,000 people there's two stages but they're never on at the same time it happens that I stumbled upon a full recording of Rock in Rio really September the 8th it's on, it's on YouTube is it really yeah 
Oh. Is it okay? <laughs> it's a hell of a gig. Oh, and I looked you. at that. There were a number of thoughts. The first one was playing to 150,000 people. There's a point where you walk forward on the apron of the stage and your band is behind you. I couldn't work out whether you were the most popular person in the world or the most lonely. <laughs> How does it feel when you're out on the open? Because it's very dark. Can yeah. you see everybody? You can see people. People are right up to it. So I wanted to go out because I wanted to get nearer them. You know, I'm sure you know we don't normally play to that volume of people. Well, I wonder so, about that. Yeah. Was this particularly big? Yeah, theme? it was massive. So we normally play theatre. So it's like it's 2,000 people. It's 3,000 mm. people. You don't need a big screen. It's like, were there diamond screens on either side? Yeah, there were. Right. Which is, it's a different thing because quite often people are looking at the screen instead of looking at me, which is funny. And I, ha and I had a weird experience where the, the stage that, that's not on is showing the stage that is on. So at one point I sort of looked over and saw the back of my head on the screen <laughs> that was over there. And it's like, oh, like, a, like it was a sort of rear view mirror or something. It's really weird. But yeah, on the apron, you can just see, it's just like, beautiful Brazilian boys in their 20s kind of singing along and they were the same kind of boys that I had met like in the steam room at the hotel or like <laughs> on the beach or... Although so. actually a lot of the cutaways to the audience are dominated by women looking at you, watching right, you and right. loving everything you stand for. That's really cool. I did see a lot of women. Well, your margarita has arrived and my spirits. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Here's to Monday. Cheers. Monday afternoons. Mmm. So good. Uh, let's have a look at this menu. What would you like? Is there anything you don't eat? I mean, on here, there looks like nothing I wouldn't like to try. Should we get the dal makhani? Yes. The desi salad? Sounds good. And then the paneer butter masala? Yes, I happily eat that. The chicken curry? Yes. And the grilled prawns? I was looking at the prawns, yeah, they look really tasty. And some rice? Are you having roti or not? And some roti. I just... You, you I can't don't know, say no to roti. Yeah, a place that does it, I just love to see that. You once went to a, a Prince gig. Yes. And then afterwards went to his hotel suite or whatever, where he got you to watch the whole show back on video. Yes. The one you'd just seen. The one he'd just played. And this was a thing that Prince did. He did it And then it you danced time. with him in the hotel suite. Yes, this, this happened. So <laughs> what he does is he does his show, which is two hours long, and then there was an after show, which involved dancing, and then he said, do you want to come back and see the show? And I said, what, are you doing another gig now? And he said, no, I'm going to watch the show back that we just So what time in the morning did. is this? I guess it must be like midnight or one o'clock in the morning, but the whole band goes, and they watch the show on a massive screen. And what he does is kind of go around and just kind of have a quiet word in someone's ear. And he might be just trying to help them on what they did. He might, I don't know what he was saying to them all, but he was whispering the drummer's ear. He would go over and whisper in the bass player's ear. He would go and whisper in the... It's very like, intense, isn't it? But his thing was, I want to beat that guy. So he would be watching himself to see what he could do better. And like at one point in the gig, he'd gone out and done a solo and he was on, I don't know, in-ear monitors and he hadn't been able to hear the... So it's like he'd gone slightly out of time. So he was like, oh, kind of waving at the screen like, oh, this is me making a mistake. But he said, oh, this is something Michael Jackson used to do. He, wa he wanted to watch it and see what he could do better. And, and to me, that just blew my mind. It's like, you're Prince. You're already there. What else is there to achieve? But he just wanted to be like, he said, I want to beat that guy. 
Jack, do you want to tell us what you've just laid down on the table? Yes, so brilliantly. Here we've got the paneer butter masala. We've got a very full dal makhani wow. there. And then you've got the tangible chicken curry there. And that's pilau and there's the rotis. It's side. so good. And this is everything we ordered, right? I don't need to sort of pace myself. No, this is it. We can go in. I can go in. And it has to be said, these prawns are magnificent, yeah. aren't they? Them really, really massive. I mean, did it get any bigger than tiger? Is there one up from there? Yeah, it's called a lobster. <laughs> but I don't think I'm joking. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Talking of, you know, as a result of what you do, getting to meet people who are renowned, and you are eating with your fingers, so this is yes. relevant. You know mm -hmm. where I'm going, don't you? Stevie Wonder. Mm -hmm. How did you come to meet Stevie Wonder? What was the situation? I think the first time I'd sp I spoke to Stevie, I guess, I don't know how he had heard of me, but he had. And he was playing, he had a radio station in Los Angeles. I think he might still own it, but at the time he did a show on there. And he just called me on my phone. I think someone told me he was gonna call. But he was like, hi, it's Stevie. Hang on, who gives Stevie Wonder someone's phone number? <laughs> I don't know how these things work, but I think if you're Stevie, you can basically just find out anyone's number in the like world. Like being the CIA of music. Yeah, exactly, okay. you're just like, just, just make it happen, yeah, make it okay. so. So he called me and he's, he was like, oh, Corinne, I like your song. And I was like, you're Stevie Wonder, this is crazy. And I was in my house. And then he said, can you sing some of it on the phone? Which I just hate That's to do that. Agent, it? But it's Stevie Wonder, so of course I'm going to sing my is song. Is this before or after you've done Isn't She Lovely uh, on Later? That must have been afterwards then, yeah. Okay. That must have been afterwards, yeah. So you're, you, you sang down the phone to Stevie I sang Wonder. down the phone to Stevie, and then he said, do you want to come to LA and to my show? And of course I did, and it was a morning show, but the, the spread of the food at sort of 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. was, you know, the size of this room, just all sort of like fried chicken and potatoes and salad. He's playing a show at 6 o'clock in the morning? His radio show is a oh, morning show. Okay, okay, His okay. radio show is a morning show. The time, a time I had been out with him to eat was at this Ethiopian restaurant where you just use your fingers. And the food came and it was on that massive bread, which I can't remember what it's called. It's like, well, I remember being with my late husband, he says it's like bandages, because you just like roll up yeah. a little crepe, but it's like that crepey bread. But yeah, Steve's thing, which makes a lot of sense, is that you're eating with your fingers, so you get to feel the texture of the food, you get to feel the temperature of the food, and then, and then yeah, amazing to sort of see uh, person who's not sighted sort of go amongst food and find what they want you know what they want with their fingers i have a friend who's um extremely good at playing almost anything uh, uh, you know that he's asked to play in any key and it's fully wow. harmonized and all of that and i said to him well is there anything that you find defeats you and he said yes stevie wonder mm. and he said i suspect though he had no you know he, he couldn't kind of back this up but that because stevie is blind his harmonies are not directed by the shape of the keyboard in the way everybody else's are. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. I thought you were going to say, I think with Stevie Wonder, he's actually an alien. <laughs> because, <laughs> because so many of, you know, of our friends are just like, what planet is Stevie from? He's his own thing, you know, he's just so beyond, you know, he's a Jedi and... There's a few people like that, like Herbie Hancock or Wayne Shorten. How is it when you get a call saying, would you like to work with Herbie Hancock on, on his Joni? Just, I mean, it's just okay. un, unreal, surreal. And, and at the same time, like, you know, there's no hesitation. Of course I want to do it. How was Herbie Hancock to work with? I mean, Herbie's so, like, he's, uh, he's been a Buddhist for, I don't know, like 50 years or something. That sort of makes sense. 
So he's super chilled and really humble. He's kind of like, everything's quite slow. Oh, is it? He's kind of like, hmm, right. Well, let's have a go at this and see what happens. Like as though it's gonna go wrong, which of course it's not. But I think they just, they hold all these possibilities, you know, it's like, well, maybe, who knows what's gonna happen? And I remember playing um, River with him at the Abbey Road session. And he would do a different, you know, you have to run it for the cameras. It's getting filmed as well, so you run it for the camera. So we'd do it and we'd do it another way and another way because this guy needs this shot in this way or whatever. But every single time was a totally different introduction to the point where I would come in wrong every time because I think, okay, I know where it is now. And then on the second take, the introduction would be nothing like the and previous one. And how big a band were you working with? Um, at, at that time, it was quite a small band. I think it was, you know, including me, there were five of us, All maybe. Right, okay. so, but, so, so it was just open, spacious, like, cosmic jazz that is her but, but at a moment, to feel comfortable to keep missing the intro and not dying a little inside every yeah. time takes yeah. a very chilled environment. He's totally cool. Yeah, he's re he really is cool. I mean, this was a few years ago. I feel like I would maybe know he's playing a bit better and I'll just kind of know, but he's not like giving you a nod. Like he's not anxious at all. And I think, okay, I'm just going to come in here. But it's like stepping onto, I mean, it's perfect for River. You know, it's like stepping onto the frozen ice. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I mean, genre is really annoying because often it's the music writers who define what genre is. But do you see yourself as having more of an affinity with the world of jazz? Your first husband, Jason, was a jazz musician. Mm, he was. I think um, because I've, at this point, had been married to two people and they're both jazz musicians, I, I feel like myself to be jazz adjacent. <laughs> it's so funny when I'm playing a jazz festival because... I always feel like, I don't feel like I'm there by accident. I know that people have got me there, but I am totally untrained when it comes to playing the guitar. When I do sit down to try and learn scales, all I want to do is write songs. I'd much rather try and write songs than sit and get better at the guitar. And then I've got accidentally a bit better at the guitar just by playing my own songs, but I am by no means a guitarist and I would did did, um, did your late first lions. husband, Jason, he, mm -hmm. he was a great saxophonist, yeah. worked with Mark Ronson. I'm not telling you that, I'm telling people. Yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, but naturally, um, you know, some people, yeah. Did he try to act as educationalist, or and has Steve, who was obviously playing with you and is a great jazz pianist, attempted to do the same? Or have they, they, they haven't. I think, um, you know, Jason was always really... Um, really supportive, I guess, of my music. You know, he saw me in my indie band. He was like, oh, you know, I love, you know, he had all these superlatives about the music and he really believed in the music, even though it was coming from quite a different thing to his music. And I feel like he never said, oh, you should do this or you should do that. But, you know, accidentally I absorbed loads just by 
having to be at millions of gigs. You know, just when you're in love with someone and you're like, and they're a jazz musician, it's like, okay, well, you've got six gigs this week and I work in a cafe, so I guess I'm just going to be at all the gigs. It's something to do and that's where all our friends are and we can all hang out and I get to see you as well. So I do feel like I learned loads from just kind of watching how the band works, watching how the audience responds, learned loads from him, which I, you know, the, the skill that he had, which I, I guess, aspire to have is that he's sort of like, would be able to sort of set fire to something, you know, like it would be cooking along at a certain vibe, groove, whatever. And then he would just be able, because he played alto, he would just be able to sort of blaze in. And I'd seen it happen in lots of different contexts. Even before we were together, I remember I worked at the underground and I, you know, you'd be sort of cleaning tables on a Sunday evening and the band would be sound checking and a few stragglers from the afternoon would be there. But he would just be kind of warming up and playing and then something would catch and he would just go off and people would just... Like, you know, forks would go down, people would go talking. Down just listen. Yeah, it would just, it'd be like, you know, orchestrated like it was a film kind of thing. Like he would just, you'd find yourself, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you wouldn't be able to talk because a, a firework would be kind of happening on stage. And, you know, I really, aside from all the feelings I have about his, you know, him not being here, I have a huge frustration that he that the more people didn't get to hear what he well, he died far too young and in, do yeah did you this it's a very personal question you don't have to answer it did you go to therapy after he, I he didn't died? He was I didn't but I spent so much time um I spent so much time talking to my friends because it was such a big grief there was just nothing you, else your husband had died yeah, yeah. there's nothing else so I, I feel like I sort of talked round it and round it and round it and round it to try and find a way into it to try and fix it and it was so I, yeah I did I never went to therapy but I feel like probably the people around me were quite good counsellors or just listeners you know I think probably mostly at, at something for grief you're just kind of listening even though the person's saying for the 150th time the same thing they're just kind of nodding so you know I had a lot of really good nodding is friends. it helpful do you think as a songwriter that you have an outlet for all the big moments in life. Definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think... Um, the birth of your children, falling I think, in love again. Yeah, I think it just... I think even if it's not as a songwriter, it's just as someone who has music as their outlet, and, I mean, some other people might have, I don't know, ice skating or whatever, but just to have a thing where you can... You can sort of embody a, a cry, you know, you can be in a moment of a massive amount of sort of musical tension in what's happening around you and you can't sort of like cry it, make it into a cry. You know, before before I started, you know, doing my own songs again and working, after Jason died, I, I was playing music and I was playing with John, who I play with now in my band, I was playing with Steve, obviously he'll play with now, and um, a good friend of ours called Andy Hay. And we were just, we had just picked all these songs and we picked some Curtis Mayfield songs and, but just being able to sort of put all these kind of bitter and detached and... You could borrow emotion. Yeah, it, well, I could sort of... Yeah, the song would be, you know, because we used to do Kesarar as well, like, you know, that sort of decadence, just being like, whatever will be, will be. And I remember being able to sing that in a really kind of embittered sort of place of, oh, you think everything's lovely and your career is flying high and you 
you've bought your first ever house and you've just got a letter saying you've paid for it and you don't have to ever, ever have a mortgage again and you're young and you've got friends and your husband's started doing well and you're healthy. Yeah, you think that's your life? You know, just like, let's see what happens next. Like, I loved the song then of just been like, everything that you believe is the source of your happiness and joy and security can just Go on a night vanish. when you're in a car driving in one direction and get a call telling yeah, you to go in another. can just sort of vanish in a moment and then... How, you know, then what does it feel like to be sort of stripped to those things? I remember being able to, you know, like the price of love. I, I like singing that as well. You know, that's, that's the debt you pay with tears and pain. You know, I just picked all these. <laughs> and I don't know what it was like to watch, but it was like, here's all this painful stuff that I can't, I just can't keep it in. But I still want to sing and it's, still, uh, it's like, it's all... All sort of gets it out. Has your enormous prawn? <sighs> it hasn't beaten me. Okay. Well, I don't good, think, I don't think I'll go things. for a second. I'm, I'm putting the... Um, well, I'm going to split it because I can't let that go and then but, you're going to stare at the other half. But there is the chicken and mm -hmm. the, the paneer. The bread's good, though. Have you always been comfortable with the idea of performing? There, the, I want to say one particular thing. You, I was looking at um, one of your very early performances on Later... We did like like a star, mm -hmm. and it's you on guitar. Yeah. There is another guitarist with yes, you. Yes, yes. And this is—is is that your first on later? I think. Yes, it is. I think it was my first ever time, probably on TV. Right. Well, yeah. here's the thing. Yeah. So when you do later, sometimes the performers perform to the room because all the other yeah, musicians yeah. Are there. Yeah. And there's a camera going round you, and it comes quite close to you, and you turn, and you you sing straight to that camera, right, right. in a very direct, a very emotionally connected way. I went, blimey. She was ready. Oh, that's really... I'm really glad that it came across as that. What happened with that performance was I had done it and it had gone OK. I had got this, like, thing that I sometimes get where I'm nervous, where I'd had to, like, gulp during one of the words. And I was like, oh, I'm so bummed. And then they come over and said, we're really sorry. When you were performing, one of our camera people sort of walked in the background. And would you mind doing it again? And I, was, I thought... Mind, I would love to do it again because I felt like I'd sort of messed up my first ever TV thing. So I got to do it again and they said to us, I, I don't, would you at some point be able to open your eyes? And I didn't realise that I'd done the whole thing with my eyes closed because... Well, you do that quite a lot. Yeah, you know you do. Well, I have to, I have to remind myself, remember to open your eyes. I have to remind myself of that in all my gigs because... It just feels more, I'm just like in my sort of trippy world. So they said, remember to open your eyes. So I thought, okay, great. I get two, two chances. I get a chance to do it without a gulp in it. And I get a chance to open my eyes. So I don't know, at that exact moment I open them and then I'd, maybe I just, it might, I felt like I was more like a rabbit in the headlights. No, but yeah, you, like, you, just uh, keep have you not seen it open. since? Open. No, I You've haven't. You've not done a prince. I, I never, yeah, exactly. I'm the opposite of him. I'm not learning from my mistakes, but. Um, yeah, I find it hard because I want to be... I guess his thing was much more, I'm an open performer. I'm doing the splits at this part. I'm spinning on this part. I'm knocking my microphone over here. And it's, my thing is, like, I really want to just be in my world so I can sort of send this thing out without too much self-consciousness, I guess. And it, to me, you know, when you say, am I a comfortable performer? You know, if I'm at a party and someone says, right, let's play 
charades and you have to do this, I just sort of think, like I find it really uncomfortable to do things like that. I'm not the sort of person who's, you know, everyone pay attention to me, I'm making a speech and I'm going to be really funny. You're about to do a piece at the Serpentine Pavilion. Have you written a specific piece for it or Um, will you be performing just some of your catalogue? Yeah, I'm going to be performing new music that is... um, I'm writing this album, I've written this album in response to this art archive in Chicago on Stony Island, it's the Stony Island Arts Bank, which was historically a, a, a wealthy area and then it became increasingly an African-American area and is now, I think they call these areas now underserved communities. But, you know, as we were waiting to get in on the first day, we heard what I heard was a loud bang, which I didn't know what it was. And it was, you know... Gunfire. Yeah, at sort of eight or nine in the morning. And, you know, because the people know the situation, nobody was killed in that instant, which is really good. It was young, just young people. I think someone was injured. And there's a lot of, as people know, a lot of gangs, groups, lots of violence on the south side of Chicago. But this bank was, you know, it was at one point sort of mafia-owned. Mafia it's 100 years old. And it's this beautiful gothic structure in the middle of this um, beautiful block which if you try and find some an apple or some food to eat you're going to be on a really long walk it's a food desert so is the music responding just to the bank or the whole experience of going to the environment i mean i guess i couldn't i couldn't not respond to the, the environment but yeah the bank itself contains um it contains all of the archives from the johnson publishing company who did jet magazine negro digest sepia ebony so all the all the things that were published through them and all the books that were given to them for review so sort of i don't know all the black books you know chicago is i guess a really important black center so it's in a way for you in the same way that put your records on was engaging with your blackness your hair be yeah yeah is this you also engaging with ethnicity and who you are in the world i I think it's me engaging with who i am in the sense that, yeah, I guess an interest in black history, an interest in place, an interest in, uh, I guess, just allowing the things that are, are my concerns to sort of come into my music. But yeah, I'm responding to this Johnson archive. It, there are also these objects that have been dubbed Negrobelia, so they were collected by this black and Chinese banker called Ed Williams. He would go to yard sales and get these, you know, offensive postcards and mammy jars and the you know all, all the sort of ephemera of jim crow and the yes and yeah. the deep south and and the and you see how widespread these things were you know when you look at the postcards of where they were made but also who was writing them who was sending them places who took those photographs and with this lynching postcards there's all just just all of these objects which this banker collected and when he died his children sort of said we don't want these things. He had taken them to keep take them out of circulation. So they are in the in the arts bank, but not sort of displayed, but they're in the archive of the bank. Then there's all the records that Frankie Knuckles ever had, because he sort of bequeathed his record collection to this arts bank. When I went there, there was like a Nick Cave sound suit hanging up, and then the, some of Theasa's own work is there, where he's a Black Madonna, where he's responding to the Johnson archive. So. I just went there and I found that these objects were talking to me. You know, I was meant to be on tour and thinking about that, but I'd just be thinking about a sculpture I'd seen 
which interested me and was wood. And then I asked him what it was and, and it was the floorboards from an abandoned police station in Chicago. And I thought, you know, what have, what's, what have these floors seen? You know, like the, the secrets that are held by the, the inanimate objects. What, what state is this new album in? When, when can we get to hear it's this? It's going to come out next year. It's finished, but we're just doing the mixes of it. It's two parts, but I've only finished one of the parts. And it's taken me a long time, but I've loved it because it's not necessarily my... It's stories that I feel like have come to me through these things, but it isn't that it aren't stories from my world, my heart. Although they have done something to my heart as well. Yeah, you just pushed your fist into the palm of your hand <laughs> in a quite dramatic yeah. way. Yeah. Do you feel with, you're hardly old, but with age and time, yeah. on the, time on the road comes a certain freedom that you're not required to be an earlier version of Corinne Bailey Ray? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I think being old, I mean, I think especially of um, having lived through a grief and a loss where... I feel so lucky to be old, you know? Like, some people don't get to be old. I'd, I would love to be really old one day, you know, really sort of wizened, and I like the root of that word that it comes from, you know, becoming wise. I'd love to have a really long life, and, you know, it's amazing to be around, say, Herbie or Wayne, who are in their 80s, you know? I went to see Wayne's opera. Wayne Shorter's. Wayne Shorter's opera, and he's, you know, got completely white hair now, and he was in a wheelchair, and he got pushed on stage. And I remember speaking to him at his 80th birthday and saying, oh, so you're just, you know, taking things easy now. And he's, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm going to write an opera, and I'm just doing this now, and Esperanza Spalding's doing it with me. And, yeah, it's like, kind of like, he was insulted, I think, you know. Yeah, that, like, that he was packing it in. Yeah, it's like I've got so much that I need to do, that I want to do, and I'm just, you know, I'm just in the, I'm still in my flow. There is one story I have yeah. to ask you about. It's purely out of just curiosity. Meeting a barmer. Yeah. He put one of your songs on his, uh, where he always comes up with lists of what he's listening yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. And he chose, I think it was your, was it your 2016 it was green, album? It was Green Aphrodisiac, a yeah. song from, um, yeah, a song from The Heart Speaks and Whispers. That was incredible to get, it was incredible for two reasons. One is all the people, other people that were there. Oh, who amazing. else was there? Drop some names, drop well, some names. Well, it, um, it was a celebration of Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney was being inducted into, it wasn't a Hall of Fame, it was, he was winning the Congressional Medal, Medal of, of Song. Of Honour, yeah. Yeah, so it's... it's it's once a year, I think, you know, Stevie's got one, I think Paul Simon's got one. So on this year, Paul McCartney was getting one. And I think because, I think Paul McCartney had invited Herbie and Herbie wanted to do Blackbird. And because I've played Blackbird with Herbie before, he invited me. So I'm very happy to get <laughs> invited. But it was like, it was it was Stevie Wonder, it was Herbie Hancock, it was Dave Grohl, who I love. Um, it was, I think it was Emmylou Harris, um, like the Jonas Brothers. I can't think, and I can't think of who else. Oh, Jack White was doing it as well. So it was just all these people, like on a minibus, going to the <laughs> going to the White House and me. So that was just really like a fun school trip, you know. But yeah, meeting Obama was amazing, and you know the, the height of them, you know, physical height of say Michelle Obama and and um, the president and. I remember a postcard had been published of the Obamas meeting the Queen and Prince Philip and the stature difference between them was really sort of notable and it felt like one is the old regime, one is the new regime, you know, it was really interesting to see. But yeah, I think his 11-year-old was like the same height as me or something. 
But yeah, Michelle was like, oh, we listened to your songs in the gym and thanks for coming. And then I, and I remember saying to him, you know, we're so proud of you. And he sort of like jerked his head back in kind of surprise. And I thought, oh, that, okay, that didn't exactly come out how I wanted it to come out. But what, what I meant to say was, we, like some people who look like you, feel a pride at your achievement, you know? Does it ever get old, that stuff? being in minibuses with Dave Grohl and Paul McCartney. I mean, not at all. And then I just read um, Dave Grohl's book. Have you read it? Storyteller. It's so good and it's so... Um, it's It really reminds me of my uh, teenage years, you know, of being into bands and being really excited and, you know, getting to go to shows and sleeping on people's floors and how exciting all that was and learning to play and sort of doing it wrong and then finding out that it was okay to sort of do it this wrong, wrong way. And you're just the kind of that whole thing of, I guess, grunge and how it was so empowering to young people and you could just, and you didn't have to be taught and how it was good if you couldn't really afford things, you know, it was like you didn't have the right equipment or you couldn't have afforded the teacher, but you got there anyway. So is that the sort of advice you would give to any aspiring musicians who are 16 or not just aspiring, but they're already playing? Just keep doing it. Yeah, just keep doing it. And I think the necessity to find your own voice and use your own voice is so powerful. And, you know, I love hearing music that breaks through that's a bit weird because you can tell it was really made by that young person. And similarly, I always feel a bit disappointed when you hear a 20-year-old, but it's really slick. And then you read the credits and it's written by someone who's much more sort of like cynical or experienced or, or someone who's already had their success and is kind of writing that same vein you know it's, it's great to just hear people do their own weird thing and I just think there's so much room I feel like so much of pop music's got very sort of slick and there isn't much room for mistake because people don't buy records so it's all about you don't want to lose your sponsorship with these people who give you sneakers and all of that stuff is really it has a potential to kind of really narrow down who gets to be in front of the speakers, you know, who gets to be heard. I have to ask one, one it's almost a final question. Um, you don't do many podcasts, do you? No. Any particular reason why you did this one or was it the offer of a good lunch? I could only find one other, actually. Yeah, I think we did it. I did a bunch of podcasts when podcasts were sort of new All around... Right the launch of my third album, but I was the interviewer. Ah. So I was talking to all these people about the heart and instinct, because that's what the record was about. And I did like interviewing them, but yeah, maybe I just don't get asked. I haven't turned a bunch of them down, honestly. Well, I'm delighted you agreed to do this one. We can have a look at dessert, but for now I would say, Corinne Bailey Ray, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. Thank you very much. What a brilliant conversation. Thank you, Corinne. And thank you to the Tannel Prince team for hosting us and serving up some of the largest, most delicious prawns I've ever seen. Um, if you loved this show, and how could you not, please give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share this with literally everyone you know or have ever met. Uh, and also comment. Give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Why not? It uh, does help us to make more of them. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged, and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Paul Brogdon and the mix engineer was Jay Beale. The producer of this episode was Bethany Hocken, the senior producer is Selena Reem, and the executive producer is Ollie Wilson. Next time, it's comedian, actor and writer, Joe Wilkinson. Oh, it's quite, yeah, it's quite nice to just be yourself and be honest, because everything else I do is a complete and utter lie. Is your life an entire lie, Joe? 
I feel like it is. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to treat this as lunch, just as therapy. Um, 